And welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabadek and Sean Karnikian. Uh, New year, and we're not going to make any jokes about Sean, and Sean's not going to make any jokes about me this year. New year, new Brian. So what do we do on Civil Action? We review recent cases from the Court of Appeal, Ninth Circuit, uh, California Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court that affect plaintiffs in their practice. We got some good, interesting ones today. Some of them are a little obscure, but I think that some of these have very real issues which impact people's lives. First of all, Sean, where can they find us? They can find us online at kbklawyers.com. And why, they can find why do they find us? Why do they find us? Yes. If they want to see pictures of us and read about our our adventures, or they could just read about the cases that we work on and uh, interesting things we have coming up. We do seminars. We have some you know, throughout the year that we're trying to plan, and they're all free, and you get CLE credit for them. So you know, come for the CLE, stay for the booze. That's good. Is that a good That's pitch? That's a good line. That's Is a good that a line. good pitch? I don't so know. what kind of cases are we covering today? Okay, so we got all uh, California Court of Appeal cases. The first one, uh, there's no way to summarize it aside from calling it the case about the nightmare client um, and what happens when you have someone that keeps firing people um, and what happens to their money. And then we have a case that has to do with fee arbitration. So a couple of client relations types of cases here. Um, fee arbitration between a lawyer and a client. Then we have a case about DocuSign, um, which is something that I think a lot of firms use now. And we use it it's a lot in this ubiquitous. world. So it's very important that ubiquitous. you pay attention to that one. And then lastly, we have an interesting case about reducing punitive damages and the proper procedure for doing that and the kind of outer bounds of what you can get in terms of punitive damage. I think every single case we're covering today is from the California Court of Appeal. I said that. Di- I said that. Divisions. I said that. Is it? I, I said that, and it is. Yes, it is. And I think that every single case today was very long to read, and because this is like twenty minutes law school, in about twenty minutes we're going to get through these four cases and go through the key principles in them, uh, which are somewhat obscure but somewhat important at the same time. So let's start with the case of Hood versus Gonzalez. This is out of the um, Fourth District Court of Appeal in in Orange County. San Diego, actually. San Diego, down south, yeah. And this is the nightmare client case. This is a nightmare client, and I will say that we know some of the lawyers involved in this case, uh, preeminent lawyers in the plaintiff's community, but um, this client, I guess, had a bicycle accident, right, Sean? Yeah, his name is John David Gonzalez. So already, you know, serial killer. So John David Gonzalez comes into my office, what am I going to say? Nope. (laughs) The exit's that way. Um, So John David Gonzalez. um, How many lawyers? He'd been through like two lawyers? Way more than two. Five. Yeah, five lawyers. Five lawyers. He had been through five separate lawyers, which by the way, just as a cautionary tale, particularly to young lawyers or lawyers that aren't used to doing plaintiff's work who might be listening to this, if you're the third, fourth, or fifth lawyer, uh, you're not going to make a difference in the client's life. Get out. Yeah, don't take that it. That is a red flag if I've ever seen one. Do not take it. No matter how enticing the case sounds, do not take it. Um, so over here, you have Mr. Gonzalez who hires his first set of lawyers. They achieved, I think, some sort of small settlement, uh, partial settlement of the case. Fires them, hires another lawyer uh, named, I believe, uh, Let's stay away from names. Yeah, okay. Let's no, stay away no names. from names. No names. We're not going to name um, the lawyers. No, no. We won't name the lawyers. So hires another lawyer, fires that lawyer. Um, hires a, a, a third lawyer, a third set of lawyers. They achieve a big settlement for him, and he refuses to sign the settlement agreement or, and the settlement check. He I think at some point in time, he must have signed the settlement agreement but refused to endorse the check, which becomes an important side issue in this case. And then somewhere along the line, he hires yet another lawyer to um, try to resolve this dispute who files some kind of an interpleader. 
That's right. What's an interpleader? Uh, so an interpleader is an action, a separate action you file with the court when you have, typically I see it in the context of disputes over attorney fees, uh, where you tell the court, we don't know what to do with this money, please give us direction. And so we have no way for no way to resolve Typically, it. if a lawyer walks away from a case, generally speaking, but not exclusively, they're not entitled to fees. Uh, but if you get fired, you're entitled to your fees. General rule is you're entitled to quantum merit. One of the issues that comes up in this case is what happens when the client fires their lawyer literally on the courthouse steps or as a settlement's being entered into or agreed to, um, and does the client then uh, only have to pay quantum merit? No, the courts hold in those cases that the client is obligated to pay the full fee because the full fee was earned. That's right. And by the way, the lawyers, the, the, we mentioned a number of lawyers, five lawyers that were involved in this. They're not the only lien holders in the case. There's a bunch of other vendors too. There's there's medical lien holders that pro- presumably provided treatment. There's uh, cash advance type of businesses that presumably advance and money to the client. And then it looks like some of the lawyers also advance money to the client. That's right, which you can do if you follow the proper procedure. And they had their own costs and they had their fees. So- um, there were a number of mouths at the trough here. Yeah, yeah, and, and and understandably so. This seems like a problematic client who's lawyer shopping, and it's not like it was the lawyer's fault in any way. So one of the things that happens in this case, Sean, is that the lawyer is that because of this this uh, interpleader, and he's represented by somebody who files the interpleader on his behalf to try to resolve all these disputes, and then fires that lawyer. That's right. And then brings in another lawyer to try to, I guess, resolve the case. Defend him in in the interpleader. That's correct. So So the lawyer that files it asks for, uh, he moves for an appointment of an Ellisor. What is an Ellisor, Brian? Good. Other issue that comes out of this case. So an Ellisor is, under the law, a legal fiction, um, but its common legal meaning is a person appointed by the court to perform a function like the execution of a deed or document. And in this case, because there was a settlement, it was a binding settlement, and the client wouldn't sign the check, you need to have the court appoint an Elsor who then ends up being the court clerk who endorses the check. So someone to endorse the check because uh, the your, person- Your client won't sign the check right. for the settlement that he's agreed into. And I can tell you that I've been doing plaintiff's work for you know many decades at this point in my life. And everyone, including myself, has had a nightmare client like this. Yeah. And, and as a result of it, there is grounds and methods that you could do it. So another issue here was whether or not the trial court could simply adjudicate the claims of the various lawyers and parties, including the plaintiff in this case. And the court of appeal says they can. Yes, they can. They can. So the court resolved the distribution of the money. I think at the end of the day... Um, you know, Mr. Unhappy here, who went through five lawyers, didn't end up with very much money. That's right. Then the lawyers probably took a haircut. It was like a lose-lose situation. It was a lose-lose situation for everybody. There were lots of lawyers involved in this. One of the things that he argues on appeal is um, that the court didn't have the authority to make these decisions without a jury. And the first thing the court talked about is the doctrine of invited error. The doctrine of invited error is where you fail to object to a process during court. In trial court, you can't then raise it later and say, oh, look. Uh, So the first thing the court does is they say, look, under the doctrine of invited error, you can't even raise this. But then they go on to raise it anyways, and they say the the interpleader was a proper means to resolve these issues. Um, The next thing he argues, or one of the other things he argues, which I think is relevant, and it kind of will finish the case on this because it bleeds over in the next case, is that clients have a right to arbitrate their fee dispute. But under the law, you only have the right to a fee arbitration under 6201 of the Business and Professions Code if you do if you 
demand it within 30 days of the existence of a fee dispute. If you don't, you forfeit that issue. You forfeit that right, and you have to litigate it in regular court, or the lawyer can bring the action. But you also forfeit it if you don't raise it in the trial court and only raise it for the first time in the court of appeal, which is absolutely yeah, that's kind of a no brainer. But if you have a fee dispute with a client, this is a case to check out: Hood versus. uh, Hey, it is it is literally chock full of all kinds of cautionary tales and issues, and, and finishes with that issue about a fee dispute, which takes us to our next case. Which is also a fee dispute issue in the case of Sony or Sony versus Simple Layers Inc. This yeah. is out of the um, Second District Court of Appeal here in Los Angeles, which is where our firm is based. Which we're always willing to talk to you about your cases. Feel free to reach out to us. You like that commercial? You don't have to. You don't have to plug us between every plug. case. Is that what we're going to do? We're going to do a plug for for KBK at every. But do case? not bring your fee dispute stuff. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, and don't bring a client that's gone through four sets of lawyers already. So this is an interesting fact pattern. I don't think anyone in here was through multiple lawyers, but the first lawyer, which is named Sony um, Sony Law Firm, Sony S O N I, solo practitioner or sole proprietor uh, here that hires other lawyers to work for him. Occasionally, so he has a client that retains him, and there's some result that he uh, he gets. Uh, don't know the underlying facts, but there's ultimately a fee dispute, and the lawyer advises a client of their right to arbitration, which is something you have to do after you have a fee dispute with a client, and the client. Uh, decides to arbitrate. Apparently, the request to arbitrate wasn't timely. I think that's one of the issues here. That's one of the issues is at the beginning of a case, a client has an absolute right to arbitrate every single fee dispute um, that that they have with their client, with their lawyer. Yes. So if the lawyer says, listen, you owe me money or or there's a term here or whatever the case may be. Or you owe me costs even. They have a right to that. Yeah. But it's it's... It's non-binding arbitration. Unless, unless both, both parties agree. Exactly. And um, the client has to exercise the demand for arbitration within 30 days of receiving notice. Yeah. So that's issue number one that comes up in this case, which is that the um, the lawyer sent, and it was a relatively small amount of money. Well, well, yeah, that's what I was just about to say. What's wild is the arbitration proceedings were held, and the arbitrator awarded $2.50. And um, do you think that's a good use of time? Well, no, but I mean, the disputed at hand, the outstanding balance was $7,211 yeah, um, less a payment maybe of $100. That is, so maybe that's a lesson the here. First, yeah. The first lesson is, you know, think twice before you file a, a demand for either arbitration or sue a client over an amount of fees. I understand smaller firms, $7,200 may be a lot of money, but you really have to think twice about it and where you're going to go with it to the best use of your resources. But after that demand was made, apparently the client waited more than 30 days to institute arbitration. Not a lot more, but more than 30 days. Yeah. Um, And then the the award was issued. And Well, let's stay with just that issue, Sean. Let's stay with just that issue because I want to trace that because that's – because the the possibility is that you if the client then files a demand for arbitration you and it's later than 30 days you just file your case in superior court and let the client try to move to compel arbitration if they're beyond the 30 days that isn't what the law firm did in this case they didn't do that no they went to arbitration then they got an award um then they responded to the award in more than 30 days after uh, receiving which is it. the second important issue in this case but let's stick yep. with the first issue first which is because he didn't raise it in superior court, he raised it with the arbitrator, and the arbitrator either disregarded it 
or didn't rule on it or whatever the case may be. And ultimately, the Court of Appeals said, listen, you kind of blew that or the arbitrator made a finding and we're not going to overturn the arbitrator's right, finding because on the, that, that initial 30-day rule. That's right. The, the lawyer was arguing since the client didn't file it within 30 days of getting notice of their right to arbitrate, the, the arbitrator doesn't have jurisdiction over the matter. And ultimately, the LA County Bar Association rules provide that the arbitrator has authority to determine whether or not he has jurisdiction. And since he either didn't make that argument or, or the arbitrator didn't buy that argument, to a, so I wouldn't it. have done that. I would have just filed yeah. it in Superior Court and let the Superior Court judge make that determination. So that was, you know, because once you ask an arbitrator to make a determination about whether the arbitrator has jurisdiction or not, uh, you know, think about it. Chances are the arbitrator is going to find that he or she has jurisdiction. But now let's go to really the critical issue in this case. So the award comes out, $2.50, whopping award. Uh, The client takes the the petition and or or takes the award and files a petition in the state court to confirm the arbitration award. Meanwhile, the lawyer files a lawsuit in Superior Court. That lawsuit, the arbitration award, does not get confirmed. The um, the Superior Court says, well, since you made your demand within 30 days of receipt, yep. right, receipt, yeah. you are, um, you're timely in moving de novo because it's de novo in Superior Court, goes to trial, actually like a four-day bench trial on this issue, and the lawyer ends up not only getting his fees but ends up getting attorney fees of like seventy or eighty thousand dollars, yeah. Right? So he gets like less than three thousand dollars in his underlying attorney fees that's he, that he's disputing, and then as part of that recovery process, he gets an award of attorney fees for like almost eighty thousand dollars. So good day for the lawyer, it sounds like, until this appeal is filed. Right. So the issue on appeal, and he had very good the 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 client had very good appellate counsel. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the appellate counsel for the um. For the client, for the the law firm, but the client had very good appellate counsel, and what they said is, "Look, this is a quirk in California law: is that the thirty days for this specific issue starts running from the minute it's dropped in the mailbox." Right, that two dollar fifty cent award we're talking about. The lawyer sat on that. I mean, I didn't even know if he sat on it, but the the ultimately the rule is no. I think the lawyer assumed the thirty days um, was the thirty plus five or thirty days upon receipt. Right, and it was timely based on that. On those calculations, and and the trial court agreed that it's timely based on that. But the court of appeal ultimately says, um, court of appeal buys the client's um, uh, argument here and says, no, the the, uh, extension in the CCP for the plus five for mailing doesn't apply here. Uh, And what what counts as the dates put in the mailbox? Yeah, there's a concurrence by Justice Baker, Lamar Baker, really smart guy. And he says that um, the legislature could correct this because it is a trap for the unwary, and it could be the client, it could be the lawyer, but it's a trap for the unwary. The the court of uh, the the legislature should correct this, but the court can't because the law is pretty clear that the thirty days starts to run from the day it's dropped in the box. So the last issue I want to raise on this case is that um, there was there was one final issue about. Uh, whether or not there was appropriate um, tolling. So, but the reason I want to bring it up isn't because of tolling in this context. It's just to remind people listening to this that the statute of limitations could be tolled for legal malpractice while this arbitration is pending. Right. So, That's something it. to keep in mind anytime you're asking clients for fees is you may be inviting a legal malpractice case in return. However, Usually, it's a one-year statute of limitations for legal malpractice, and it could be two, three, or four years for collection of fees, so something to think about, right? Yeah. 
Let's go to our next case. Next case. We call this a DocuSign case. Fabian, Rosa Fabian or Fabian versus Renovate America. So Renovate America shows up at Ms. Fabian's house and as actually doesn't show up in person, is over the telephone and says, we can install fabulous solar-powered um, panels on your house, and all you have to do is agree to a mortgage, basically, on your property. Right. So they have her sign something over the internet. Allegedly. Allegedly sign something over the internet over DocuSign. So let's talk about And, and what did DocuSign? they do? They took like a deed out on her? Yes, they, they, I think they, they did. They put their name on the deed I to her house. Like, like a you I know, think mortgage they order. did. Yeah. So the whole thing sounded, you know, a little suspicious, or at least it does from the Court of Appeal opinion. But this is actually a kind of common scam that that these companies run on on kind of older, more susceptible people. Well, not just older people, but people who just don't know, don't understand. Yeah. I think that you know, solar power is going to be the greatest thing ever. There's nothing wrong with solar power, but it can be oversold. It's oversold by salespeople. But that's not the point of this of this podcast. The podcast is to talk law. Oh, this isn't just this, this isn't, isn't renewable power, energy. You renewable energy. energy hour with Brian right. and Sean. <laughs> I don't think we're qualified. <laughs> then we'll go Someone's move on gonna, to quant- people actually quantum listen physics. To this, they get it, they send us angry emails about making fun of renewable power. Right, right. Then we'll move on to quantum physics, another subject we're very well versed right, in. Right. Um, so anyway, so a dispute arises. Uh, Miss Fabian says that um, the installation was faulty. I was taken advantage of. I, Apparently, they don't do anything about it. So she files a lawsuit. Yep. And in response to filing the lawsuit, they file a petition to compel arbitration. Of course. And the the grounds for the petition to compel arbitration is the contract that she allegedly signed through DocuSign. So DocuSign, if you don't know, if you've been living under a rock for like the last decade, DocuSign is an electronic program which allows you to sign stuff electronically. And just to prove to people that I'm super smart, it has, it has to be in compliance with the U.S. Electronic uh, Signatures in Global and National Commerce Act. E-sign. You're reading that. I am. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a statute but, 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 before I did this. All kidding aside, this is something that we use, and Brian is actually familiar with it because, look, it saves time. It, it kind of keeps things organized. There is a way to verify who signed it. There, It creates uh, an electronic paper trail, which sometimes is even better than an actual physical paper trail. And I've had this discussion with lawyer friends of mine where they say, well, is this legal? And what I came to learn recently is DocuSign even has a page on their website that explains how to authenticate DocuSign's signatures and why it's legal and how to explain this to courts, which is something maybe the lawyers that were, were arguing for Word arbitration America. Here, yeah, w- w- would have benefited from. So uh, ultimately, Fabian argues that, look, I didn't sign this. I, I, I didn't sign this document, or you haven't established that I signed this document. And um, Renovate so, America just submits a, a declaration that says, yes, she did. It was done through DocuSign. Here it is. And that's all. Right. And, and that's not going to be enough. So the first thing I want to say, though, is that if DocuSign, if there wasn't a way to establish signatures through DocuSign in a court of law, then DocuSign would fail tomorrow, right? So that isn't what this case is saying. This case is just basically giving instructions on how you do it. And here, they clearly didn't do it because they didn't provide any evidence to the court whatsoever from or about DocuSign. So the easiest way, although it might be difficult to get DocuSign, the easiest way would be someone from DocuSign to submit a declaration saying, we had this request. We processed this document. Here's how it went. There's the address it went to, and here it got done. But they, you don't even have to do that, right? No, you can you can explain to them the process. In fact, there's a court that they rely. I mean, sorry, there's a case that they rely on called um, 
Newton here that in that case, the defendant submitted a declaration stating that it sent a contract using DocuSign, plaintiff signed it, and then and there was an identifying code, and there was all this explanation of what DocuSign is. But, but the Court of Appeal goes, that's different. Those facts are very different from what we have here. Here, Renovate, the defendant, did not provide any evidence from or about DocuSign in its petition, reply, or supplemental declaration. In fact, the word DocuSign doesn't even appear in any of Renovate's moving Problem. papers. Problem. Don't we see this so many times in court of appeal cases where it's like one little easy thing could have fixed it. Yeah. And it's not a gotcha. It's something that's pretty obvious. Well, and and but one takeaway from here is that DocuSign's fine. You just have to go through the process. There is a federal law called e-sign. Um, it's codified at, at 13 USC 7001, and it's actually called the e-sign law. Yeah. And uh, that makes these kind of things bad. Then the so, court goes on to say that look, there's there's a it even acknowledges that there's an identity identity verification code. It's like a 15 digit unique number that's assigned to each signature and each sig- uh, signer. So they could have explained that. They didn't do anything about explaining that. So they kind of forfeited those arguments and they lose their motion to compel arbitration. So something to keep in mind if anyone ever challenges your your DocuSign signature. All right, our last case today, kind of a long case, so we only excise one portion of what we thought was relevant for our discussion. It's called ENA, ENA North Beach, Inc. versus 524 Union Street, First District Court of Appeal out of San Francisco. In fact, it was a restaurant in San Francisco, and the tenant sued the landlord, claiming that there had been some kind of fraud, some kind of misrepresentation in leasing this space, right? Yeah. I mean, just really quick summary of the facts. Um, This person named Hong, Natasha Hong, had leased the space. There were representations that were made by the uh, lessor, uh, that said, you know, the conditional use permits or some type of permitting was available or had been obtained. Turns out it wasn't obtained and Hong couldn't use it for whatever she wanted to use it for or had trouble using it for that. So they brought this action against the lessor um, and ultimately the jury found in favor of Hong and awarded punitive damages. Right. And so the reason that we picked this case was I thought it was relevant to talk about with respect to punitive damages. So the court, uh, there's a punitive damage award and the court looks at the punitive damages award and says, look, I think it's excessive. And um, first of all, the court of appeal said there was certainly substantial evidence to support an award of punitive damages. Uh, That's not the problem. The only issue was, is the award excessive? The trial court said they thought the trial judge thought it was excessive and here's what the trial judge did wrong. Granted a JNOV to reduce the amount of punitive damages because the court said it was unreasonably high. Which is improper. That's not the proper vehicle for reducing punitive and damages. And the court of appeals said the proper vehicle for reducing punitive damages is to grant either a motion for new trial or remitter. Right. If you don't agree to reduce it, I'm going to grant motion for new trial. So if you agree to accept $900,000, which is about what it was in this case, as the amount of punitive damages, um, the court will not grant a new trial. But if you don't agree to that, then I'm granting a new trial. We'll grant a new trial because the thinking is let another finder of fact look at this again because this finder of fact awarded an excessive amount. So that's that's the thinking there. You can't reduce it in your order or the judge can't reduce it in their order on the JNOV. Right. You can, but there's one exception to reducing it 
outside of a remitted or a motion for new trial. And that's if there's a constitutional grounds for it under State Farm versus Campbell, uh, Gore, and the, the litany Gore, of cases yeah. which talk about a multiplier and how many times a multiplier. Which is a 10, 10, 10 is the out, uh, outer constitutional bounds. Right. Uh, the 10 times multiplier. But that multiplier. wasn't what's at, at hand here, what's no. at issue here. What's at issue here is the court just thought it was excessive, they thought it was too much, and they did it the wrong way. Now, here's the little twist on the case, though, that I thought was interesting. It was apparently an oral argument, Hong, the the tenant's lawyer said, look, we don't want there to be further litigation in this case. And we understand the direction that the court should have gone with respect to this. It should have been remitted or uh, conditioned upon a motion for new trial. Um, but if but Hong will accept the amount. So what the court effectively Hong did, says, we'll, we'll accept whatever finding the court makes here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what the court ultimately did was they had to remand it and send it back for further proceedings. But the court even said the handwriting's on the wall. We know exactly how this is going to go. The court's going to do the same thing. They're going to offer a conditional remitter if, um, or a new trial, depending on which door you decide to go in. And that's pretty much how the case ended. There's other issues in this case, but I thought that was the important one. Um, and, you know, again, purpose of punitive damage is to, to, to deter and not destroy a defendant. Uh, yeah. You have to look at the amount. You have to look at the excessiveness. Uh, if there is an issue where the verdict goes above 10 to 1, uh, 10 to 1, meaning the ratio of 10 to 1, um, courts are going to look at that. I mean, there's even cases that suggest it's as low as 3 to 1. Yeah, this is a good case, I think. Anytime we have a punitive damages type of case, I always say it's a good primer for this area of the law, and it really is. Um, they're usually like fact-heavy, legal discussion-heavy cases when it goes up to the appellate level. So you know, you should check this out, ENA North Beach versus 524 Union Street, if you're dealing with a punitive damages issue. A uh, lot of issues in there, but the punitive discussion is very important. So I think that's all we have for today, Brian. Do you have any plugs, any other plugs for us? Uh, are you selling solar panels? I'm not selling no. solar panels. No. Uh, I think that Amway would be a great, um, a great side business to uh -huh. go into. Okay. Should we go into that? Selling what, what, what do they sell? Was it like Amway. supplements or something? Oh my God. You don't know what Amway that's a, is. That's a generation past like the, before me. Okay. So I'm not going to sell we anything have no plugs. else today. Just check us out. I, uh, just check us out. Call us if you've got questions about your cases. We want to hear about things that are interesting to you. If there's things we can cover. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you. And where can they find us? Uh, they can find us at kbklawyers.com. They can find us on Spotify, Apple. And I think those are really the only places people listen to podcasts anymore. So check us out. Subscribe. Give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And see you next time. We're done. Bye-bye.